Have you ever had the experience of losing something that prior to having it, you wouldn't have lost it? Like you wouldn't have known what you were missing, right? But once you had it, once you enjoyed it, once you knew how much it meant to you, then you lost it. And how much worse it feels having known what you've lost. It's a really complicated question to start with. Lots of clauses in there. Here's what I mean. I never had heated seats, right? Never had heated seats. So when it was cold out, I didn't recognize that my butt was cold. It didn't matter to me. A few years ago, we got a car that had heated seats. And then I was up in Vermont last year uh, on what felt like the coldest day of the entire universe. And my heated seats decided to break that day. And all of a sudden, I knew what I was missing, right? I knew what I lost. And the same kind of thing goes for like first class plane tickets. If you've never flown first class before, don't. Because if you do, then you have to fly coach in the future because most of us can't afford first class all the time. And it's just miserable flying in coach. I was flown somewhere first class once and it ruined my experience of plane flying. I didn't know what I was missing, but now I experience it, I know. The same thing is true with these things, right? Um, 15 years ago, we all lived and survived without having all of the information in the world in the palm of our hands, without being able to order what we want when we want, um, without being able to get directions to where we need to go, right? But now, now that we've lived with this, if you leave your house without your phone, all of a sudden, you can't find your way to work anymore because Google Maps tells you where to go, and now you can't figure it out, right? We all know what this experience is of having lost something that now it should be there. Life hits us with this, though, um, in big ways, in important ways, in impactful ways, in ways that are not really fun to joke about, right? Um, for instance, before you met that guy, before you met the girl, before you married the guy, married the girl, life was, life was okay, right? But then you've been with them, you've invested in them, you've become married, and now that that person has turned their back on you, now that that person has left you, now that that person mistreats you, the loss, the pain, um, the anguish that you feel because of that is all that much greater. The same kind of thing is true um, for, for anyone who had to grow up in a home that just didn't feel safe, right? The people who were supposed to take care of you, who were supposed to care for you and love you and create a safe environment, they failed in doing that. And you saw what that was like for your friends who had parents who did that, who had safe homes, and you didn't have that. And growing up without that, um, knowing that pain day after day, knowing the pain of someone who's supposed to keep you safe, who's supposed to love you, who's supposed to care for you, growing up without that, it's like hell. Losing that person in the relationship who left you, it's like hell. Um, perhaps the worst and most kind of poignant example of this is when we lose someone before it was their time, unexpectedly or tragically, because there is no time to prepare. There is no time to sort of grieve. That person is taken from you, and all that you feel now is the loss of what's not there. You know who should be there, and that person's not there. That's what makes, that's what makes grief so hard. That's what makes it so painful. Um, in my time as a chaplain, I can't tell you, I saw it too many times, um, husbands who would run through the hospital to get to the emergency room only to find that their wife had already passed. Seeing that loss, 
it is hell. I mean, seeing it is bad enough. Living that loss is hell. Amputees frequently um, report a phenomenon called phantom pain. And it's what happens when your arm is cut off or your leg is cut off and your body still feels the pain in your hand even though your hand isn't there anymore. It's a well-documented phenomenon and what you're feeling is the pain of what you've lost. It's the pain of what's no longer there. Now, imagine this experience, the worst of this experience. Imagine having that, but instead of just one thing that's taken away from you, imagine that everything is taken away from you. Everything that you count on, everything that you love, everything that you care about is taken from you so that all that's left is you and nothing. You and blank. You and a void. It's hell to feel that way. Because the people who you're supposed to count on aren't there. The love you're supposed to count on, the comfort, the safety you're supposed to count on aren't there. It's hell. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the day that Jesus died, this is exactly what he experienced. For hours before he actually died on the cross, from noon to 3, we read that there was darkness that covered the entire land. Nothing but darkness and void. And right before Jesus took his last breath and died on the cross, he found enough strength and enough breath in him to cry out to God. He looked up at the heavens and he expected to see the face of his father looking back down on him and he didn't and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Throughout Jesus' life, he had come to rely on God, his father, to be there, to be his constant, to be his presence, to be his strength, his rock. He drew his life from him. He drew his care. He talked to him every day. And for him to not be there at the moment where he died, when he looked up, all he saw was darkness. It was hell, literal hell on earth. What a way to start a morning right? We're in the third part of a four-part series called Four Days That Changed the World. We believe that these days actually did change the world. We're looking at the four days that surrounded Jesus' death and resurrection. Two weeks ago, we looked at um, what happened on the Thursday, the day before he died. And on that day, he shared this meal over here that we share week after week with his closest followers, the disciples. And the important thing to kind of remember to pull from that day was that it was a Passover meal. He was having a Passover meal with his followers. Passover being the celebration that the Jewish people, that God's people had for about 1,500 years, year after year after year, to remember and to celebrate when God freed them from slavery. Jesus chose to come to Jerusalem to suffer and die and be raised at the time of the Passover in order to say to us, to the entire world, what my death and resurrection is about is about freedom. It's about freedom from slavery, from every kind of slavery. Last week we talked about what happened on Friday, and we talked about how it frees us from our slavery to sin, from the consequences of our sin. Because Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he died on the cross, what he did was he took our sin onto himself, he picked it up, and he carried it off and dealt with it so that we don't have to deal with it. We are freed from it. This morning, what we are talking about is what happened between the cross 
and resurrection, between Friday and Sunday, what we call Saturday. Saturday, uh, it's interesting, in the New Testament, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they don't really talk about Saturday. Um, it's mentioned in passing, like all this stuff happened on Friday, right? He dies and he's, he's buried and there's women and all kinds of things. And, you know, and then there was a Sabbath and then Sunday morning happens. Saturday isn't really mentioned all that much uh, in any of the Gospels. And part of the reason is because it's a Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, uh, for God's people, it was a day of rest. It was a day where nothing happened. It was a day um, where they sat there, they weren't allowed to go anywhere, they weren't allowed to really do anything. And for the people who followed Jesus, this particular Saturday was a bleak Saturday. Because the day before, the man who they had put their faith and trust in died a failure on the cross, and they were left to just sit there and stew in that misery. For them, it was a Saturday of darkness. It was a Saturday of void. It was a Saturday devoid of Jesus. It was a Saturday devoid of God. And so how do I give you a 35-minute sermon on a day when they don't even talk about it, right? That's, that's part of the challenge here. Um, <laughs> I got stuff, though. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, on Friday, what happened was Jesus dies on that cross, and right before he dies, what he says spells out what happens on Saturday. When he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He dies there, forsaken by God, in darkness. Um, Traditionally, what churches throughout history have remembered Saturday as, what's called Holy Saturday or maybe Easter Saturday, um, is what's called the descent into hell. How many of you grew up in a church where you recited or had to memorize the Apostles' Creed, right? Kind of a lot of us. If you grew up Catholic for sure like I did, you definitely had to remember this. Um, the Apostles' Creed. I don't know if you had this experience when you were a kid going to that church, but you would say the creed, you know, I believe in God the Father. You'd get to the suffered, died, and was buried, and then there was this line, he descended into hell. And it's like, huh? It kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. The adults who are supposed to know what they're saying kind of say it quieter because it's like, what does that mean? He descended, he descended into hell. What is that? And it's not really in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John all that much. Um, Peter, when he writes a letter, he has kind of one line about how after Jesus suffered and died, he went into the prison, not like a physical prison, but like a spiritual prison, and he like proclaimed release to the captives, to those spirits in prison, and it's kind of an awesome image of Jesus breaking down the doors of hell and preaching forgiveness to these people. Um, it's called the harrowing of hell, which is just kind of like an awesome thing to like look into. And then uh, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he talks in really poetic language about how Jesus not only ascended as high as you could possibly go above the highest heaven, but he also descended into the lowest parts of the earth, right? And so you have these kind of two things, but the picture isn't, isn't super clear, and it's always stuck out like a sore thumb, descended into hell. And that, that creed is part of what we have here as our beliefs, too. And it sticks out like a sore thumb in part because our understanding of what hell is is just sort of bizarre. Like, hell is weird, right? Um, last week I said sin gets a bad rap, right? Hell gets a bad rap too, right? When you look up sin in the, on Google, you get sinful colors, nail polish, right? Um, my wife went shopping last Sunday right after the sermon, and she uh, was looking at... Um, the produce, and she took a picture, of, a picture of sinfully sweet tomatoes. Ooh, sinfully sweet, right? Um, 
you know, just like some people don't believe in God because they have this image of God as this old grandpa with a big beard, right, sitting up on the clouds, and that sounds ridiculous, um, our understandings of hell are really equally, equally ill-informed, let's say. Um, a lot of our understanding of hell comes from, a, a, comes from an Italian poet uh, from about 700 years ago, Dante, right? Dante's Inferno, the Divine Comedy. This is where we get a lot of our stuff with the pitchforks and the guys in red tights and um, flames and fires and demons and all this sort of weird stuff. This is where we get the cave with the stalagmites and the stalactites, right? It's kind of, do you remember the difference between a stalagmite and a stalactite? <laughs> stalactites hang tight to the ceiling. You'll never forget that now. Um, a lot of that imagery, though, it's not, quite, it's not quite from the Bible. And even when we look to the Bible to get a clear picture of what hell is, it's hard to get a clear picture of things that aren't so clear. And the same is true of heaven, by the way. A lot of images of heaven. I mean, last week, um, our middle son, the crossing guard at his school, died. He was a really old man. Um, and not that that makes it okay, but it's just, I'm explaining to you. It's, you know, it's kind of the way life is. Um, and he asked me, he asked me um, what part of his body fell off when he died. He thinks that when you die, a part of your body falls off. And I was like, um, also, if you're a parent and, and you haven't been asked these questions yet, never shut it down immediately. Always ask for more, because it's gold, right? I said, what do you mean, Eli? And he said, you know, when you die, part of your body falls off. Like his bones or his skin? I was like, okay, that's not really what happens. Um, so we kind of talk through what really happens. It eventually gets to what happens after you die. What's heaven like? And he asked me, what is heaven like? And, you know, I've been to seminary. I know, I've read the books. I, I know the answers. I have them all. I gave him this really astute theological answer. It's pastoral. It's meant for children. All this sort of wonderful stuff. He looks at me like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like Cloud City. <laughs> Cloud City being where Lando is in Empire Strikes Back. Um, he actually knew that from Battlefront 2, not from Empire Strikes Back. But anyway, uh, I'm like, okay, yeah, right. It, this is where he is. Um, the bottom line is the people back then, like in the Bible, they didn't believe heaven was like a bunch of clouds with people sitting around with angels. Like, they didn't believe that. That was an image for what they actually believed. In the same way, a lot of the stuff we get out of the Bible about hell isn't meant to be taken literally. These are images, these are metaphors, these are um, in parables, they're in story, there's hyperbolic language that's used to describe these things. And so in the Bible, there's a few kind of big images for what hell is like, or for what it even is. Um, in the Old Testament especially, but also in the New, there's this, there's this place called Hades, Sheol. This was the underworld in Jewish thinking, where after you died, this is where some people went. And kind of how you got there was a mystery, and who went and who didn't, it was kind of a mystery, but it was a place of darkness. It was a place without light, of, without life, without love. Most importantly, it was a place without God, and where you couldn't praise God. And for the Jewish people not to be able to praise God, that was, that was like hell, right? Um, People continued to exist, but it was in sort of a non-existence, a sort of non-being, where you just flitter and flicker around like shadows. But it's kind of ambiguous what it actually is, what it actually was. In the New Testament, the word that gets translated as hell, more often than not, is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna was actually a valley south of Jerusalem, south of the city of Jerusalem, that was actually just a big garbage dump. It was a big garbage dump. And what the people would do is they would bring their garbage to the garbage dump outside of the city. They would also bring, like, the carcasses of dead animals or the carcasses of um, 
criminals or slaves, people who weren't worthy of a proper burial, and they would bring them to this garbage dump, and they would burn the garbage. And there was an everlasting fire on this garbage. They just burned it all up, and it was continual forever. And so when the New Testament talks about Gehenna, um, they don't actually think hell is a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, but it's an image for something else. Then you had the lake of fire, and this is a really ambiguous thing. Um, at the end of everything, uh, Hades and death is thrown into the lake of fire, which is confusing. And then there's this whole thing about weeping and gnashing of teeth which is a whole different set of images. A lot of times when we read about hell in the New Testament, it comes in Jesus' parables and Jesus' stories. Um, if, you read, if you're reading the Bible with us this past week, you would have read Luke 16. And in there, uh, there's, a, there's a parable. It's called the, the Rich Man and Lazarus. And it's this very strange parable um, of a rich man who shows no mercy on poor people and Lazarus, who's a poor person who needs the rich man's mercy. And they both die. Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham, which is something like heaven, but not quite. Um, and the rich man goes to Hades. And he can see Lazarus and he can talk to Abraham and he can kind of talk, but they can't go across. It's very, it's very, very confusing. The point of that parable, though, is not to teach us what hell is like. The point of that parable is to teach us how to live now, how, how to have mercy now. It's not about what hell is like. Um, one New Testament scholar says that to try to glean what hell is like from that parable is like concerning yourself with what the name of the prodigal son is, right? It's just beside the point. It has nothing, it has nothing really um, to do with it. And so you have all of these different images from what hell is like, all these different um, pictures, but there is no one uniform view. There is no singular picture. It changes throughout the Bible, except, except that all of these different pictures, all of these different images, which look different, they all do point to some reality. They do point to something behind the images. And if you take all of the images and kind of figure out the common thread in all of it, um, hell seems to be where God is not. Hell is, it's hard to use words, right? Because it's hard to figure out. Hell is the place, but it's not really a physical place. Hell is the realm, but realm is just a word that people like me use when place has been run out, right? <laughs> Hell is a realm, um, it's the place where God isn't. It's the place that's forsaken by God, the inhabitants of which have been forsaken by God. In all of the images, all of the pictures, all of the forms, hell is separation from God. It's being abandoned by God. It's being forsaken by God. It's ultimate forsakenness. And to put a finer point on it, to make hell what it is, it's actually to know God, to know his presence, to know his nearness, and not to be able to experience it. To know his nearness for yourself, but not being able to actually experience it. Listen to the way one theologian puts it. He says, hell might be to recognize God as God and not be able to come to him. As long as I don't know what I've been separated from, it doesn't cause me much anguish. What I don't know doesn't hurt me, and whom I don't know leaves me indifferent. But to have to look at the spring of life and be thirsty without being able to drink from it, that hurts. That's hell. That is to suffer the torment of an exile from which there is no return. When Jesus 
cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what he experienced. This is it right there, knowing God the Father like he did, intimately, daily, a part of who he was, drawing his life, drawing his strength, drawing his comfort, drawing his direction, communicating with him over and over again, looking up to heaven, expecting to see his Father's face that he's seen Metaphorically, of course, every single day, every single moment of his life. And at this moment, in these hours, to look up and just see darkness having been abandoned by him. It's hell. We know he was abandoned, evidenced by the fact that God allowed his son to die. We have to remember, this is the Passover. On the first Passover, God saved the firstborn Jewish boys from death. On this Passover, God let his own firstborn Jewish boy die. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's not hard to see why this experience of Jesus dying like this, of him um, being buried, left in the tomb for the entire day, descending into the earth, it's not hard to see why they put descended into hell into that creed. Whatever hell is, we can say Jesus experienced it between cross and resurrection, what we think of as Saturday. The question that ought to occupy us is why? why? Why did Jesus have to do this? Why did God forsake him? Why? If you were here last week, you know that he didn't do this without reason, that God would never do this without a cause, without a plan, right? You know this. You know uh, that he died, that he allowed his son to die there on the cross for us and for our salvation. Peter puts this clear as day in his letter when he says what happened on the cross was that he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. On the cross, Jesus took on our sins into his body and the Apostle Paul, he puts an even finer point on it. He takes it one step further when he says what happened on the cross was that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, not counting their sins against them. And then he says, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Paul is saying here is not just that Jesus took on our sins into his body, but that he took them on to himself to such a degree. He embodied our sin to such a degree that he actually became sin on the cross. And what happened when the father turns his face away, what happened when God abandons his son on the cross there, what happens is that in Christ our sin has been put to death as well. In Christ, our sin has been abandoned right there. In Christ, God has turned his face away from our darkness, from our evil, from our sin, even from our deaths. In Christ, our deaths have been put to death, have been judged, have been condemned, have been sent to hell. And he does this. God does this. Jesus does this. He takes our sin with him so that we never have to go through this so that we never have to experience this. He goes there. He steps into the void. He descends into hell so that any who put their trust in him never have to fear that, 
Never have to worry about that. He died the death. He died the death of deaths that should have been our deaths. He died it already so that we never have to die apart from God. He took our judgment, bore that pain of God turning his face away so that you and I never have to. He was forsaken so that you and I would never be forsaken. And what this means on one hand is that we ought to believe in Jesus and trust Jesus and thank him with our entire lives. Because look at what he's done for us. What it also means is that for those of us who do trust in Jesus, for Christians, we of all people ought to sleep the best at night. We ought to go to sleep fully confident in what, in our future because of what Jesus has done for us. Because look at how far he went for us. What this also means is no matter how far you have fallen, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how darkness, how dark the darkness is inside of you, no matter how twisted your logic, no matter how backwards you're thinking, no matter how wrong your heart, no matter how bad your actions, no matter how hopeless you feel, no matter how lost you seem, no matter how far you've gone, there is no place you can go that's outside of the reach of God. Who can separate us from the love of Christ, Paul asks. Who? Hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. Look at how Paul finishes that thought. He is convinced. He is convinced that neither death nor life Angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Which, side note, everything is creation except God. Nothing else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That means that you can never go outside of the loving reach of God in his son Christ. Never, because wherever you go, Jesus has already been there. He's done that. You think you can go that far? It's fine. Jesus has been to hell and back. You think you could do that thing and God won't let? It's okay. He has already taken on your sin. He's already bore that for you. Remember, Christ ascended high and he went as low as you can get so that he might fill all things, Paul said. That means if hell is a void, if hell is the place devoid of God, of light, of hope, it's a place of emptiness, it means that Jesus has even gone there. He has filled that place. He reaches up to the highest heaven and down to the lowest hell. And because Jesus experienced it, because Jesus was forced to ask this question, it means that you and I never have to actually ask this question. When we're suffering in times of distress, we will feel this question. We can ask this question because God wants us to ask this question. But in the big sense, in the grand scheme, in the eternal sense, this question cannot be a question that's on our lips anymore because Jesus has asked it already for all of us. It has been answered already. That possibility has become an impossibility because of what Jesus has done. And he has done this for one reason and one reason alone, and it's because he loves you. Not the idea of you, not just you as you project yourself to others, but you. Even if you make your bed in hell, even if you make your bed in hell, he still loves you. 
that's a line from a famous psalm, Psalm 139, where in the middle of it, the psalm writer says, I could ascend to heaven, and God, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, in Sheol, he says, you are there. I want you to hear the rest of the psalm, just because it is strikingly beautiful. It tells you what God thinks of you. Listen to this. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I rise, uh, when I sit down and when I rise, you discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Oh Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's so high that I can't attain it. God knows you. God knows you because he made you. God loves you. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before you say them. To some of us, that is a really comforting thought that no one else in the world understands us, but God does. God knows you. To some of us, this is a terrifying thought that God knows the things that really go on inside of our head, that God knows the things that we would like to say, but we've learned not to say. It's a terrifying thought for some of us. But look at what God thinks of you. He says, where, or the psalm writer says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, what that means is if I fly like a bird as far as possible from God's center, from God's presence, even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Where can you go? Where can you flee from? There is no place. For some people, that's bad news, but it's not. It's good news. There is no place you can go outside of God's reach. Ascend to heaven, descend to hell, make your bed there. It's not too far. Even though God knows the things that are actually going on inside of you, even though he knows the words that you won't say, he knows and he still takes us by the hand and leads us and holds us even still. Even if we are surrounded by darkness of our own making or of someone else's making, our darkness does not scare God away because our darkness isn't even darkness to him. Our darkness, Jesus has already taken on to himself when he died in darkness of being abandoned by God. He took on our darkness when he died our deaths, went into our graves, and was buried for us. When he descended into hell for us, he is acquainted with darkness. He knows what it is. He has been there. He has done that. And he has filled it with light and with hope and with peace and with promise. Our darkness is not even darkness to him. And then it continues. For it was you, God, who formed me, who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame, my body was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book, all the days that were In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, before none of them as yet existed. How weighty are your thoughts, O God. How vast 
the sum of them. God knows you because he made you. He is proud of the work of his hands. He is proud of you, the creation of his hands. He loves you. It is why he himself took on our sins, took on our death, and so took it away. Took our sins into his body, took them onto the cross and down to hell and put them to death there so that you and I can live free from it. So that you and I never have to go there, never have to experience that because he doesn't want to lose you. He doesn't want to lose any of you. He wants us all back and at any cost to himself, he will do that. He was forsaken rather than seeing us forsaken. He died rather than seeing us die without God. He endured the pain of his father turning his face away so that we would never have to endure that pain. He doesn't want to lose you or anyone. He doesn't want to have to have us experience that pain of searing loss that we sung about in the first song. Now, in this life, it is a fact that we will experience this pain in bits and pieces, right? We will. Um, our heated seats are going to break. Our phones are going to fall into the toilet, right? Um, people who we love, who we trust in, who we count on, will turn their back on us and will fail us. We will lose people unexpectedly. It is, that pain is a fact of life. But no one, never ever no one, needs to experience that in relation to God. Because God has already taken care of it. It is finished. You can't do anything to put yourself out of the reach of God. Except, except if you continue to push God away. He doesn't push you away, but you can push him away. He doesn't forsake you, but you could forsake him. He doesn't turn his face from you, but you can turn your face from him. God doesn't make us love him. God doesn't make us do that. He doesn't program us as robots or as his slaves. He calls us his children. He calls us his bride. Anyone who's married or in a relationship knows that you can't force someone to love you. And God does not force us to love him. What God wants is for us to choose him. What God wants is for us to take that step of faith and believe in him and trust him and entrust ourselves to him and follow him with our entire lives. I'll say it again. If you have never made that decision, if you have never taken that step to believe, maybe today is your day to do that. Sure, you might have made your bed in hell. Sure, you might have flown as far away from God as you could try to fly. Sure, the darkness might surround you like that. But maybe for you, today is the day where you stop turning and walking away, stop flying away, and you turn to him and take his hand in yours, which is already there for you, and allow him to lead you out of the pit, out of the darkness, into his light, into his life. Maybe today is your day to do that. Maybe today is the day that the Saturday that changed the world changes your world too. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you reached down into lowest hell 
to save us. That you went there so that we don't have to. We thank you, God, that though we can run from you, you will never stop chasing after us, not, not to punish us, but to save us, to give us mercy. We thank you, God, that though we can descend, though we can bring darkness around us, though we can make our bed in hell, even there, you're with us. Lord, we pray that for each of us, whether we have ever made this decision to believe in you and trust in you or follow you or not, we pray that you would um, work in each of us to make it so that we stop pushing you away, so that we stop running away, and so that we start running to you instead. Give us the courage, give us the humility, give us the faith to reach out our hands to yours and grab your hand and go with you where you will lead us. Lord, for those of us who believe in you and who trust in you, may the fact that you went to hell and back for us, may that fact help us to sleep at night, help us to sleep at night, help us to be confident in our present and so in our future, and to trust in you and to live um, a free life because of it. We thank you, God, that you have done this for us and on our behalf. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray and we sing to you now. Amen.